Welcome to Arc Next Sessions. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Howdy, folks. Hi. Hello. Welcome back. Everybody ready for the, uh, for the holiday season? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> as ready as we'll ever be. Well, this week, we, uh, we don't have our regular weekly episode. We're going to do the same thing that we did last year. This is our second annual New Year's prediction episode. And uh, for those of you that remember last year's predictions, I think it's advisable to pay extra close attention to what Ken predicts this year. <laughs> That's right. And you can go ahead and, and completely disregard anything I say. <laughs> <laughs> Me as well. Yeah, Ken, you were uh, creepily uh, accurate last year with predictions. That was that was kind of interesting. I didn't expect that to come at the end of the year, and and all of a sudden you start hearing it, and then you see the front page of the New York Times saying that they came through with a major climate control agreement. So yeah, I was quite prescient on that particular issue. <laughs> Indeed, but I know Obama because I work for the campaign, so I'm down with I'm down with the White House. You have insider information. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you willed it to happen. Maybe that's what we're learning about predictions is that we just have to put the positive energy out into the universe and things will happen. Via iTunes. Via iTunes, yes. Yeah. The podcast universe. Yeah. And a couple of grand. <laughs> <laughs> is that all it takes these days? That's all it takes. <laughs> wow. Well, Ken, so can you maybe extend your Nostradamusitude into 2016? <laughs> what do you foresee for this coming year? You know what? I think I said something a little bit about uh, a particular climate event probably precipitating or at least forcing this issue. but. On some level, that's kind of happening, at least on the East Coast, and it's happening here. We don't even have snow. We probably won't have it by Christmas, which is kind of unprecedented. And I, I know the East Coast is going through like 60-degree weather, and it'll probably be 65 on Christmas Day. But I think that the more—I um, think we're going to see some coastal— destruction unfortunately i think which coast i think miami miami is probably <laughs> going to get hit oh, thank God. i think southern florida i think southern florida is going to hit it, see a category five it, it's been a while since they've really had a, a severe hurricane and there wasn't really a whole lot of hurricane activity this season so i think that will probably happen but i i think we're going to see that the focus at least my sense of it is that you start seeing more of the city focus on the city i think you're going to see more projects, either good or bad. I uh, just reading a piece about Fresno. I think uh, Mimi Zeger put up changing the street in Fresno. I think there's going to be a lot more focus on the cities this next coming upcoming year with some pretty significant projects. And so what about this past year for you? What have you been reflecting on from 2015 and how, where have you ended up now? As we have come to this time of reflection. Well, you know, I've had this uh, butcher's project and it's kind of, uh, it's starting to wind down and punch list will probably be punching within the next couple of weeks. So probably right around Christmas or just before New Year's, I'll be doing that. And it didn't matter how much, how well or how well documented the project was. It was significantly fraught with, with complications generated mostly by the general contractor not understanding or not fully comprehending the bid set. So there was a lot of, a lot of tension on this particular project and promises that were made and never kept. So I learned a lot about myself and, and I, it was extremely frustrating. So I've decided that probably in the next year, I'm going to shift to a more design build oriented environment. That way, what I realized is that I want all the money. Um, <laughs> and I say that- Just say it, just say it. Well, really what it comes down to is I spent way too much time project managing the project when it wasn't really mine to do. I didn't get paid for that phase. So I probably spent more time doing things that the that the project manager for the GC never really followed through on and didn't do a good enough job on that in that regard. You kind of you have this sense when you're doing a project that everybody is for the client 
wants to see the project come out well and has a vested interest in their own work because it should represent them. It doesn't just represent the client, it represents them, it represents me. And there's only so much I can do as a designer um, to control quality. And I don't hire the subs. The GC hires the subs. So when things don't go well, there's not a whole, I can punch it punch list it but you know whether or not it's going to come back with a better product in the end and i can i can't do too much about that so it's taught me a lot about that i need to be if i'm going to be doing this i need to be there i need to be the one hiring the people i need to be the one coordinating all that stuff and i don't like being a micromanager and i don't like being like the sole person responsible i like to kind of you know have a team but when that team isn't present and they're not as invested in it as i am i, I it's emotionally taxing when you're the kind of the only person who really cares in a large degree about how something turns out. I mean, client, of course, cares, but the little niggling things that particularly bother me as a designer really don't register with, with an owner. And when you're trying to get that, when you're getting down to crunch time, those things don't really resolve themselves to your favor. So I figured the best way to control that and having talked to other people about it, and I don't know how exactly what the legal ramifications are or the insurance ramifications are. I just thought that the best thing for me to do is that if I want to keep moving forward in this, I got to be able to be the, the be all end all. And I think that's probably the best way to go for me. I think that's a, actually a great move. I do. And what I see locally in Indianapolis is builders are making a lot of money. They frankly are. Um, And some of them are good designers and some of them are terrible designers. So to have someone who's a good designer and really cares about the project in a bigger scope, I think that's that's the way things are moving for a certain scale of projects, certainly. Yeah. And it's frustrating when I see how much the GC is paying the, the super and the project manager. And then the investors force the client to hire their own PM who has done some, has added some value, not as much as I think that they would have liked to have had added given what they're paying him. When I total that up, that's more than what I charge for a fee for the project. And if I'm doing even 10% of anybody's work in that regard, which I think I had to. I, at first, I wasn't going to visit, I wasn't going to attend all the construction meetings, but I wasn't able to attend a particular construction meeting and something happened. And I said, well, what happened here? And they said, well, they talked about, you know, VEing the flooring. I said, well, why wasn't I told this? Well, we talked to the client. So when I came, I said, well, I'm coming to this meeting then. Because if you're going to be looking at finishes, I'm coming to this meeting. I need to be able to advise them. So that told me right then from that point going forward, I had to be at every construction meeting. I couldn't miss one because this guy... And this firm was going to try to run them with some stuff that was, wasn't going to be satisfactory. And, and one, and just a quick, I, I don't want to take too much time on this, but because like I said, I could, I could fill up five hours of this. There was a proposal to VE the, uh, the lighting. And the previous project that we bid out had a, a pretty decent VE option. It went with builder grade fixtures, which is fine for like uh, for a lot of recessed fixtures, uh, recessed cans and stuff. So this time around when the, when the VE came, we said, they said they could save between three and four grand. Well, when the fixture came out, it wound up being an industrial grade two by four fixtures throughout the entire space. Oh, please. That was in the retail and everything. It was just astonishing. I said, you cannot expect, said, this is, the, the client looked at it. She goes, I'm insulted by this. Good for her. She says, this is not a VE. I said, look, I said, a VE is taking from a gold to a silver or to a bronze. I said, level of, you know, there's a level of finish here in this in this range. This is a complete redesign. And the, and the electrical contractor said, yeah, this is, I never proposed this as a VE. E option. This was a complete redesign. I said, well, this is like completely unacceptable. 
So it's that kind of thing. There's a level of expectation. There was some, you know, some really significant challenges with communications and things like that. And it's just, you know, like I said, I, I did a lot more than I expected to, but I did it primarily knowing that these young owners and they're young, they're in their uh, late twenties, early thirties, and they plan on building other spaces throughout the country. I knew that I had to be there. I had to sell out. I mean, you know, not sell out, but kind of put myself out there and put extend myself in a way that I wasn't expecting to in order to make sure that they saw some, they saw this as, as a success and were satisfied with the outcome so that going forward, they would be able to trust that I cared about how they were handled and how they were, um, their level of expectation. And I wasn't getting that sense from the general contract that that, that was ever a priority for them. So it's particularly interesting and it taught me a lot about myself and, and I lost it once and had <laughs> dropped some F-bombs. And, <laughs> and uh, that was the only time. And Did you tap them out? I didn't. This guy knows a martial art. He kept referencing what I was doing. So he kept referencing the Bushido code. And I was like, uh, all right, he's crazy. All right, so I'm just going to stay away from that guy. But I pretty much cursed him out. <laughs> I really had it out with him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was it was interesting how I had to really trust my instincts on a lot of things that I hadn't seen before. And this is my first commercial kitchen. And I had to go deep on particular issues that I hadn't experienced and wasn't intending to have to deal with. But uh, they were trying to force me to, to accept responsibility and I absolutely refused. So I think there's a measure of, you know, if we want to talk about this again, you can, if we can have that conversation, but I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, for other you know professionals looking to go out on their own, there's a really, I mean, I, this could be a nice little case study on what to do, what not to do, how to handle things. And so case study or maybe an Arconnect article on uh, how to handle a job like this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people could learn a lot from your experience on this project. And my prediction for 2016 is that Ken will do everything. <laughs> Ken will get all the money. <laughs> I want all the money. That's all I want. I'm going to jinx you if I, if I make that prediction. <laughs> Donna, what do you see for 2016? I, <laughs> I'll make one fun prediction, which is that Ken and I will work together on a project that will get constructed because he and I have been going for a couple of little sort of public art commissions and we got one that then got delayed, but we're going for another one. So Ken and I are starting to, to do a little bit of doing some proposals together. So I'm going to go ahead and predict, Ken, do you agree with me that, that we'll get one, we'll get one built this year? Yes. Absolutely. All right. Excellent. I'll endorse that. Yeah. So that's easy. My thought, and I'm going back to my predictions from last year. One of them was that Stephen Hall would win the Pritzker. And obviously I was wrong with that. I'm not going to make any Pritzker predictions, but I did say that the coverage in the architectural press was going to be less about discrete buildings and more about sort of urbanism or larger connections of, of urban topics. And there's currently a really interesting discussion going on around the Turner Prize, the Turner Prize for Art, which was awarded to Assemble, who is a collective of 16 or maybe 18 young architects or maybe artists. They're a very non-defined collective. And there's been some really interesting press around their winning of the Turner Prize this year. And a lot of it has to do with this sort of question of what's the scope of the architect's domain? And so I think that that battle is going to rage even louder this year. You look at Zaha saying that the Chicago Biennial was cute, right? That was the word she used mm. was it was cute. 
you look at Patrick Schumacher saying that what happened at the biennial is not even the kind of work that architects should be doing. And then you look at people like Latent Design or or Assemble or these other people that are doing this kind of work, even though supposedly it sounds like they're not supposed to. I think that battle over where our profession, what our domain is, is going to keep going. And it's going to be a very loud, angry battle online and social media, in articles, in the various magazines. And then against all of that noise, I think that a lot of really good practitioners are just going to keep doing their work, you know, and there's going to be good buildings that are produced. So I'm looking forward or not looking forward. I'm predicting a year of a lot of angry articles about what architecture is and what it should be. And uh, I hope to be engaging in a lot of those arguments online, frankly. Well, you know, Donna, we can kind of make that happen as you're talking with with two people who <laughs> who help run the site. So it's, it's interesting because I've also noticed that that is definitely something that has been garnering so much more inflammatory and exciting debate. Not necessarily the ones about, say, wacky skyscrapers, while those still will always, you know, fan the flames of discussion, but things about that you would also see as passionately discussed in hardcore art circles of people being like, what is qualified as the inclusive community here? Who is in and who's out? Both legally speaking, who can call themselves an architect and both practice in terms of practice? What is the domain and what is the application here? So I'm totally with you on your prediction. It's hard to imagine that going away anytime soon. Well, then there's our conversation with Liam Young about, you know, what an architect's real responsibility is. And that, that led to a lot of debate. You should get a, a software engineer and a someone who identifies as an architect who no one who builds buildings in any regard would ever identify as an architect to come and defend their terminology of why they see their job title as worthy of being using the word architect. Because legally speaking, that has come up so many times of like how you can just poach that word. <laughs> and semantically, it definitely makes you go down some rabbit holes, but intellectually, it's fascinating. So related to this, and here's my other prediction. So one of the things Assemble did is they did they have sort of helped to set up a community workshop type space where people can make objects, these little bespoke handmade objects for sale, for retail. And I think there's going to be a backlash against that kind of handmade, very handmade artisan items as being somehow representative of a co-opting of artistic practice by capital. But I'm going to put out there that the main backlash started in this sort of backlash against handmade items. It came about because of the proposed mini fedoras for your man bun. (laughs) You could could get a bespoke fedora, tiny, made to fit on your man bun. And that's where people just said, no, we've jumped the shark. No more little artisan handcrafted, you know, special precious objects. So we'll see if that happens. That reminds me of the uh, put a bird on it episode of Portlandia. Exactly. It made everybody realize like, (laughs) yeah, this is actually where we're at. Exactly. This is actually where we're at, where we're at. I'll say though, it it just as one of the highlights of my year, I went and saw Slater Kenny perform about two weeks ago and uh, Carrie Brownstein's just freaking amazing. She's incredible. And I guess that also raises the question, where does her domain lie? Is she a comedian? Is she an actress? Is she a guitarist? What, you know? She seems to be able to be all those things. So so we'll see what architecture, how it gets further defined and argued over in the coming year. Absolutely. I would like to throw into the mix my prediction for next year, which is not necessarily exclusive to architecture, but has more to do with the realm that we're currently occupying, podcasting. Um, <laughs> that, sounded, that was my best NPR voice or NPR intro. 
So I realize that this might be a little bit wonkish outside of the architecture realm and more in the in the media realm, but we've just in in we've been doing this podcast for over a year now and we've nearly chalked up 50 episodes and we're we've been looking at where podcasts are going and all the incredible proliferation and diversification of podcasting as a medium. Like there's just like people talk about the golden age of television. Well, right now we're just in this crazy like deluge of different podcasts and they're all trying to make money in some way for the most part, but a lot of them aren't. So I'm really interested in the next year and how the worlds of advertising and podcasting will continue to meld in interesting ways, given that podcasting, or at least a lot of the really heavyweight ones, are still very much indebted to the ways of public radio and how public radio kind of continues being a funded um, object, even though it's not necessarily like a government funded thing. And how simply when we do podcasts, like how we support them and how they come out of an organization, because we have now this field where podcasts are being produced by publishing companies that otherwise create creative or journalistic content, but they're producing podcasts that are stories or somewhat journalistic, but entirely for another corporation that is paying them to do it. So like we had this whole thing with Serial last year, which was of course huge in the end of 2014. And that kind of brought more people into understanding like what an ad in a podcast could be. It could be some cute little mispronunciation of the ad, or it could be an entire 40 minute segment or episode brought to you by GE. And it's like this whole other episode. And so I think it's really fascinating, this movement we're going towards and into just diversifying the forms of advertising in audio with also this, you know, movement of ad blockers on the net and new forms of advertising on on the web in general. And how we're trying to figure out how to, A, not piss people off by like putting yeah. ads everywhere, while also making sure that all of the journalistic and narrative different content that you see online can continue being supported, like that people can find a way to uh, fund it and the people who are creating it get paid to do it. I think it's really fascinating. And there, there's a lot of like frontier territory where people are doing stuff that in other advertising or other media forums might be like, uh, can you really do that? Like, like putting an ad in the middle of a piece of journalism is a little bit, there's all these different th ways that we're experimenting with it. So I'm very interested to see how that will go. And I predict that it will meld in interesting and novel ways. Can I ask you a quick question? Why, yes, Ken. <laughs> oh, cool. You know, one of the things that I've realized is um, I like my content coming through an auditory sense. So I don't have time to read a lot of books. So I use an app. Well, not an app. I don't want, what is it John Hodgman called? Buzz Market? But I use um, I use the Amazon thing that the, the app that they have, and I buy books. I bought audio books. Hmm. I prefer listening to my books rather than reading them, and especially when it's an author presenting the when an author is actually reading his or her content, it makes it much more palatable, much more interesting. And you're talking about the podcast. Are we? Do you think there's like a shift from actually reading? anything anymore to a delivery system where I can't read while I'm walking on a track, but I can listen to your book. I can't read your book, but I can listen to it and I can get the same, maybe I can get the same information out of it that I could if I had read it. Well, I'll leave the is literacy going down the toilet because people are listening to more podcasts nowadays to argument to the exact same things that happened whenever Twitter came out, when the internet came out, when television came out and radio came out, blah, 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 blah. But I will say that on that note, and this kind of connects into another half-baked prediction that I'd like to make is that there's so much dystopic talk about AI. And one of the, my favorite, I wouldn't necessarily call this AI, but like one of my favorite options is on my Pocket app. So Pocket is the app that you can basically bookmark articles on the web to read offline in other ways. There's a function now that lets you listen to the articles through Pocket's own text to, to uh, speech transmission. So it's like 
still in a weird robot voice, kind of like a Siri voice, but it ver- it's very effective. So if I'm like driving and I'm like, have all these pocket articles I want to catch up on, then I will listen to it that way. But I would say that that just makes it, you know, more ways to consume what is what is inherently the same media that we'll be seeing more things like that. So whether or not that means more audio versions of other things or simply a proliferation of more podcasting content, who knows? Also, people keep talking about video podcasts as a thing, which I'm just kind of like, no. TV, right? <laughs> not not, not going to happen. <laughs> right. Paul's prediction is that's not going to happen. Well, actually, based on your predictions, I think I'm going to scrap my predictions that I had because I wasn't really feeling them too hard and go on uh, go on a tangent from yours. I'm also really fascinated about the direction that podcasting is going. But my prediction is um, I am very patiently awaiting the buzzfeedification of podcasts. I think Ooh. that, you know, when it comes to, oh, wow. when it comes to, I think that 2016 is going to bring us a lot of new podcasts that are going to be very popular and they're going to be between five and 10 minutes long per episode. Because so, I have personally noticed that there are a, a few podcasts that I, that I subscribe to that are generally between five and 15 minutes and they're good. They're not great, but I listen to them as soon as they come out, because it's so easy to get through that podcast. It's like almost any commute in my car, I can get through that podcast from the beginning to end. It's short and quick. I don't have to, you know, sit in a parking lot and try to force myself out of the car to leave a, an hour long episode. But I also think that unfortunately, that's probably going to be mostly due to the financial responsibility of podcasts to monetize themselves. And you can throw in one ad in a five, 10 minute podcast much more easily than you can throw in you know, 10 ads in a one hour podcast. Nobody wants to listen to that, but Mm. everybody will be okay with listening to a short ad in a short podcast. And, uh, you know, I think that, yeah, I think, I think the web has shown us that that's where things will go for better or worse, mostly for worse. So there will always be a demand for longer, more kind of thoughtful podcasts, well-produced podcasts, actually serial or not serial Gimlet media, which I know that Amelia and I both listening, listen to a lot of their podcasts. They've shown through their own research that there's a very clear connection between the quality of the production of a podcast and the amount of listeners and the amount of ad revenue that they're able to demand. So I think there will also be a very, a much higher level of quality of podcasts from studios that can afford to put in that, that type of investment. It's really interesting that you call it the BuzzFeed of podcasts because BuzzFeed recently within like the last four months or so poached this really hot young producer woman to do their podcasting. They basically Mm. started from scratch, like within the last half year, their whole podcasting segment. And I totally thought it'd be, yeah, it'd be like, you know, super short segments, nothing particularly expertly produced. I mean, expertly produced, but not like super finessed in the way that you get something like Radiolab or something like that. But I've been amazed to see how they've been able to kind of grow this content that makes sense to their readers, but still seems to like chart a bar higher, (laughs) which Mm. I think is kind of what BuzzFeed has been doing for a really long time is that they start at the lowest common denominator. <laughs> and mm. then they grow out from there Interesting. Be, by getting tons of funding and then just being able to do it. Well, that's how BuzzFeed did it. I mean, they started out yeah. with a listicle editorial. And then once they generated a ton of traffic through kind of fast and easy content, then they, they started investing in higher quality editorial to make it seem like they're, they're a real publishing company. So to get to this for architecture, we basically want to create a podcasting five to 10 minute form publication of the gossipiest stuff. So like a Zaha channel, you know, like a lawsuits channel, like a people falling off a building channel, like that kind of stuff, like the slummiest stuff, and then get tons of funding 
This is the BuzzFeed model. And then... <laughs> and then do like... Uh, and then do... Yeah. yeah Month-long investigations. Exactly. Into, then partner uh, yeah. with Sarah Koenig and do like the next, I don't know, Ted Cruz story or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I've just predicted a very bleak 2016. Yeah. Let me throw this in though, that a lot of podcast listening happens in cars. Yes. But I also think that self-driving cars are going to start impacting our city forms. You just took the, the uh, prediction that I, that I trashed. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. And actually, and I think I know where you're going. Once, once cars start driving themselves, maybe we will want video podcasts. Or we're going to read mm-hmm. books, but maybe we'll just want video podcasts. <laughs> but I don't think, you know, I've been seeing, there's a lot of car companies right now making these advertisements for their upcoming autonomous vehicles. And they usually include, there's one that just came out yesterday. It was a company that that made a, a version of the BMW i8, but it's fully autonomous, customized version that actually, instead of a glove compartment, there's a bookshelf. But I don't think people are going to do that. People get nauseated when they, when they read in a car. And if you don't have to look at the road, then why bother listening to a podcast? I think, so I think video podcast may come about once cars are driving themselves. All right. I like that prediction, Paul. I'm glad you didn't completely trash it. So also one that I don't want to get too into, but I, I, I predict that 2016 we'll start seeing a decline in the interest of this uh, micro architecture trend. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think people are going to realize it's just whatnot, yeah. dumb. It's dumb and it's also patently endorsing terrible quality of living for affordable housing and all that. Yeah. So let's just hope that it goes away. Well, we have seen the, was it Mark Hogan's great article saying shipping container architecture is just stupid, yes. like just, just completely trashing it. So yeah, I think, uh, I, I think you're right that that, that's... And there's a lot of crossover between microarchitecture and shipping container and architecture. shipping containers, yeah. yeah. However, I did give a presentation to my son's class, first, second grade class about architecture and part of it included shipping container architecture and they dug it. Mm. I'll bet they did. They loved it. I also want to throw in one more piece of recyclable trash to this perform, <laughs> like presumably now back on the table item, but that in this discussion of are they architects, are they not architects building stuff and tiny houses in or out kind of deal. I think that we will see certainly, and we already have a little bit in 2015, so maybe I'm cheating a little bit, but a resurgence in the interest in cooperative housing and cooperative living in a form of actually fully investing in the architecture to be serving that way and not kind of having this, getting rid of the whole like squatter mentality or squatter aesthetic to these things and just having them actually be suited towards other economic realities of difficulty and and stresses in housing. I've seen it in a few things. In fact, there's, we can talk about this in another episode. I don't want to get too deep into it. But recently in LA, I went to this pop-up music event in a what was called a pod hotel. It was called like pod square or something. I don't remember exactly the term. It was basically like a hostel, and but a hostel specifically for people who are either in transition from one job to the next or in interest of just paying by the day, but infinitely. And everything else was shared. You would like share internet and share food resources. And the only other thing that made this not like a hostel was that it was in technically a industrial building, not zoned for residences in, in downtown LA, so that they had this kind of Robin Hood vibe of trying to take over buildings that are desperately needed in spaces for housing in LA and then use them for such at a nominally affordable, however, still pretty ridiculous price over the long term. So forms like that kind of happening and be getting being supported as real businesses. I believe this particular business recently got some funding by the same organization that WeWork is a part of, mm. actually. So like there's clearly a demand for it and there's clearly some type of future for it in some form. But at this point, you still got to change the zoning laws because there's at some point where like they just get kicked out. <laughs> so that's my other soft prediction off of Donna and Ken and um, Paul's trash item. I can totally see that happening. That'll be an interesting one to watch because it, it does seem possible, plausible because it's desperately needed mm. in a lot of ways. So yeah, interesting. And it does kind of 
fit that category of a lot of other things that tend to get filed into the hipster category Mm -hmm. of sharing culture and that have not been explored as much as it it could be. And I'm not I'm not saying that it's within the hipster category because it's not unimportant or trendy, but but that subculture, I think, tends to predict overall trends. All right. So is that it? I think we've got 2016 all figured out. Yeah, we do. (laughs) And oh, and one other thing is my my horrible prediction from last year for 2015. I forgot when I was predicting it last year that I actually meant that that prediction was for 2016. And I stand behind that. Uh, So So you have to go back and listen to the prior episode and figure it out what we're all talking about. Yeah. You just had a long range prediction rather than. Yeah. Rather than. I was just. It's a resolution. Looking right past Mm -hmm. 15. Yeah. (laughs) And onward to 2016. I can't believe none of our predictions were about Mars. We'll have to do a whole other episode about Mars prediction. But did you hear that Elon Musk recently said that he's worried about World War III uh, ruining his plans to colonize Mars? Anyways. (laughs) Totally off topic. So we're going to be taking a break over the holidays from the podcast. And that's right. That's what we decided. We, right? we decided okay. we were, we're <laughs> okay. going to let New Year's Day or what? Um, the, so the podcast usually comes out on Thursdays. So we figure for Christmas Day and New Year's Day, we can or Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, we can we can take some breaks. Yeah. So everybody can just listen to cereal while we're gone. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we'll be back <laughs> after the holidays. Great. So um, as we say each week, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcNext Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcNect if you enjoy the podcast. Please consider rating us on iTunes and telling your friends about it. And uh, we're looking forward to bringing this podcast into 2016. Thanks so much for listening to another year. And uh, we'll see you guys after the holidays. See you in 2016. Happy holidays, y'all. Happy holidays. Bye-bye.